Welcome to the Creative Play and Podcast Network. Join us as we review our favorite RPGs, collectible card games, MMOs, video games, PC games, and bring up interesting topics and things that we'd like to share with everyone. Sit back and enjoy the show. Hi, this is Kelly, a.k.a. Trixie from Ragnarok and Roll, assigned to Ragnarok Story, and Tilda Wimblewick from D&D Journey of the 5th Edition. First off, I would just like to say thank you to everyone for listening to our varied adventures, as well as for rating us on iTunes and RPGpodcast.com. If you haven't rated us yet, we would greatly appreciate it if you could. And if you're looking for more ways to support our efforts, we are now on Patreon, a great site where you can help us continue making more podcasts, as well as some special surprises for our patrons. If you can, please look us up at www.patreon.com cppn. Every little bit helps. And again, thank you for listening. Okay, welcome everyone. This is our panel on multicultural steampunk literature, and uh, my name is David Lee Summers, and I am the author of this fine series of steampunk novels. Owl, let's start with Owl Dance, Run Through Lightning Wolves, and The Brazen Shark is the new one just out as of a month ago, and thank you. And it is the Clockwork Legion series. I am working on book four right now, and I have. Yes. There, there are rumors it might continue even beyond book four. So and that's very exciting news. It is. So by day, I am a mild-mannered author of steampunk literature. By night, I work up at Kitt Peak National Observatory, operating telescopes, and and do some of that as well. And. Um, I'm, I have had a long interest in multicultural steampunk, partly because we, um, partly because of just growing up in the Southwest, having parents who grew up in the Southwest, having grandparents who homesteaded in in Texas and New Mexico. The the Southwest is a very multicultural environment, and to me, it, it's just. It's hard to imagine writing steampunk that doesn't take into account other cultures. I, and I have read David's books, and I run a book as well. I'm mad at you. You don't know who I am. I'm like, I see all these people who I've met, so I'm like, oh, no, no. But I'm mad at you, and I'm part of the board that runs the Tucson Steampunk Society, and we have a monthly book club. I have a very avid love of steampunk fiction, which I love to present. I have a background in linguistic anthropology, and um, I speak a host of languages because that's really fun. And um, that's my like outside of character life. And so, like David, I really cannot imagine reading about the steampunk world, much less writing about it, and limiting it to one tiny little island <laughs> yes. with one tiny but teeming city, because really, I like to remind people, funny thing about the 19th century, happened all over the planet at the mm-hmm. same time. 
So I've read David's books, and David, you know I love your books. Thank you. I would tell all of you I love these books. And that you have a really wonderful take on incorporating more culture, um, Southwest culture, in a way that is never feels like you've never just jammed in, like painting gears on it. It's like very organically and importantly a part of the story. It's lovely. So I highly recommend his books, FYI. Thank you. You're welcome. And now we, we pay you, well, we'll, we'll do that after. Right, you'll actually, the next David comes again to my book club and we discuss the brazen shark. Yes. yes. That's what happens. That's a given. So. So, anyway, we're here to talk about not, not my books, but not other books. But other books that we would recommend that, that uh, also do a good job and, and discuss the 19th century in, in steampunk literature. Uh, we're here to answer your questions about the subject and um, maybe even talk about what we like about these books. And I guess we can, I, I did make a, a brief list. Oh, good on you. Uh, I can, I can start out with that, or if you want to suggest anything. Um, well, I mean, maybe we can sort of give a personal favorite to start. Ah, excellent. Yeah. Yes. So, one of my personal favorites uh, that is sort of a really interesting multicultural approach to steampunk is S.M. Sterling's Peshawar Lancers. You stole mine. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you have apprehended my book. I know, I'm your favorite. Well, that's how good it is. Well, well I will think of a second one while you're right. while you um, discuss the uh, value. Uh, let me just say that there are some really fun things about this book. It is it is sort of retro futuristic, so it takes steampunk and that genre. And do you know the beautiful thing about that genre is we can look backwards and reimagine the nineteenth century. Or we can imagine some cataclysm that sort of froze our development and continues the mores and the culture of the 19th century with technology proceeding. Oh, hello! <laughs> excellent! Oh, I call her a crown. Yeah, thank you. Voluntary Association. Yeah, yes! <laughs> For the people. For the people. Um, so, and what he does in this book is he has the cataclysm, and so all of the people in the British Empire have to end up in the Raj. They end up in India, and the cultures mingle, develop, change, and grow into a whole new amalgamation. It's beautiful. In fact, the, the, the novel is set during the 20th century. But it's the 20th century in, in a world where the Americas have essentially stagnated and disappeared off the map. And all of the British Empire is centered in India. And the greater game between India, between the British Empire and Russia has continued even further. So the Cold War that we might have between the US and Russia has now become between the Raj and Russia. And he does some lovely things with language, um, culture, and dress. One of the things I love about this book is it never feels like he's just stealing something and appropriating it. So he gave 
beautiful job looking in anything he does he is going to go do his homework on and he has done alternate history for years yes so it's beautifully done so that's my favorite and um i love to recommend that one to people to read Right, because we are up into the 20th century, so they have developed uh, they have developed uh, internal combustion. Right, they're using the Stirling engine and that sort of thing. They, there's a great oh, there's a great moment on an airship, like a battle royale of an airship that does not feel contrived at all. Plays a nail biter. So good. So there's great use of of sci-fi technology. Again, one of my, as a reader and a, and a lover of our genre, one of the things I hate most is a book that feels like it's just another genre and someone has has done a sepia paint over it and, and metaphorically glued a few years on it. And you're like, but that technology makes no sense. Why, why is that there? I mean, like, there's an airship and they live underwater. I'm so confused. So, you know, one of the things I like about this is all of the technology moves the plot and makes sense in the story. So it's really good sci-fi. I guess is what he I'm does saying. get into telepathy in it, but he does it. His angle on it is, if you have studied the Cold War, you know the Russians were looking into telepathy for real in our world, and he develops it in such a way that it's not. It's not overpowering, people can just read anything out of their mind. It's almost more of an empathic power, and it feels very organic within the novel. It doesn't feel like it's a, a forced-on sci-fi trope to, to have a sci-fi trope in the, <laughs> in the novel. Yeah, it's really lovely. So did you think of another one that you I did think of another one, and I'm actually going to, in this case, uh, recommend a small press novel. It is only available on Kindle, unfortunately, for those who, who like paper, but, uh, but it's Beyond the Rails by a fellow named Jack Tyler. And what it is basically African steampunk. Oh, fantastic. And he, he, he admits pretty freely that he took the idea of Firefly and took that the character that he has an airship crew that will basically take any job, do anything, whether legal or not, and they are working in Africa. And again, he has just done this, this research into what Africa was like in the, in the 19th century. He has a crew that's very believable. He has a crew that has come to the point of realizing that if you go down into uh, into the, the, part, the wild parts of Africa as they would have been known to the British and, and to the Americans and mess with people, they will, 
destroy you, basically. And, and he paints this very realistically. He has people who, the villains are often the exploiters of, of the African uh, cultures, but he, he's very respectful of the African cultures that were there. Uh, the airship crew is really a great bunch of people. You really, you really begin to fall for them. There are two books, Beyond the Rails and Beyond the Rails 2. And they, they are definitely, uh, definitely worth looking up, and uh, I highly recommend them. There's, and, there's, and often I have found personally that the small press is a really great resource for finding some fantastic um, steampunk that deals with something other than Albion. And, um, you know, even even getting really good steampunk that deals with the Southwest, such as you do, David, is rare. So much is set in this sort of like hyper-Victorian London setting. And let me tell you, I've been to London. I like it. It's a nice city. And I like England. Very pretty. kind of prefer Glasgow. But um, that's in Scotland, and it's, I mean, I'm assuming you all know your geography, so stop me if you don't. Be strange, but, because you're all very smart people. But, um, you're, I mean, you too, Verity, I know that you're, like, on point. But anyway, so it's hard to just get out of England sometimes, even to the southwest and gunslingers. So, getting to the small presses can be very useful. And um, you have... And I was just going to say, one of the places you can go to, one of, one of the ghetto, literary ghettos you can go to to find south, what, good southwestern steampunk is sometimes it, it's billed under the title Weird Western. And it's worth looking up Weird Western novels because some of them, not all of them are steampunk. Some of them are very much magical stories some of them are very much uh, some of them are very much aliens or what have you but there are some very good steampunk books happening hiding under this weird western title right emma Moore did one that's um, kind of like um, territory territory set in tombstone Wyatt, basically wyatt earp and johnny ringo are wizards in this and, and fighting against each other. And it's a, it's a lovely, I mean, Emma Paul is a fantastic writer anyway, but it's a really lovely read. And then, I mean, you just did a Kickstarter of some interesting short fiction. We did. And then, um, Go, what is the first okay, name? Okay, so, so the, the uh, Kickstarter was for, a, and in fact, that's a segue to another one to talk about too. The, the Kickstarter was for a book called Gaslight and Grimm, which was, is a uh, steampunk fairy tales anthology. Now, much of the steampunk in there is, um, is going to be very traditional steampunk, but uh, the editor, Daniel Ackley McPhail, is very interested in multicultural steampunk. My story in this particular anthology is a story set in India, I took actual, I actually went directly to the source material with the Grimm, uh, with, with uh, the Grimm brothers, and found one of their little known stories called um, no, go ahead and sit down. Yeah, I'm, I have half a knee missing, so sometimes I, I feel, oh yeah, no, this is a terrible chair. <laughs> oh, here, how about how, how about that one with the rounded back? That's probably better. <laughs> Thank you. I'd like to stand 
Hermione says no. But, uh, but yes, Gaslight, but my story in it is set in India. It takes some inspiration from, um, from Kipling, from uh, the man who would be king, and uh, pl- puts this into uh, the story is the steam, uh, the, the original story is the dragon and his grandmother. And my, my process in this was back in, back in my long ago misspent youth, I, I actually got a German translator certificate. <laughs> like you, I love languages. And, um, and, and we, one of the projects we did on the way to that was uh, translating uh, Schneewittchen, the original Snow White. And so I've always had a love of the grim, the original grim fairy tales, and so I actually tr- did my own translation of The Dragon and His Grandmother, which is just a great title. Yes, it is! <laughs> it wonders, how does a dragon have a grandmother, and especially when you find, meet her, she's very human. <laughs> so Now I can't wait to read it, and I know I backed that Kickstarter, so okay, I'll thank you. And um, one of the, uh, and one of the other, but my segue in there was that Danielle, actually, this is another book, and I can recommend it because I have for my magazine Tales of the Talisman and for some anthologies I have done, I have edited Danielle. I have the book, but I haven't read it yet. But she collaborated. This was a story she wrote for. Gaslight and Grimm, uh, called, um, let me make sure I get it right, Baba Ali and the Clockwork Jinn, which is her take on, on Alibaba and the, and the 40 Thieves, and she collaborated with Day al-Muhammad, and it started out, it was going to be a short story, and as many short stories are want, once you, once you start looking at the Grimm fairy tales, or once you start looking at the uh, even the uh, Arabian Nights, you realize these stories were very spare when they're told. And if you start expanding them to try to really understand the characters, sometimes they have a way of, of growing <laughs> and, and growing. And so, so it ended up becoming a novel in its own right. So um, I recommend, I know Danielle well enough to, to feel safe, even though I have yet to read it yet, uh, read it, I, I would strongly recommend Baba Ali and the Clockwork Jinn. We may have to put that in the club reading list. And I believe that one is available in paperback. Fantastic. So. And if you were in the Kickstarter, if you supported the Kickstarter, I think she actually has it in the package of ebooks that she gave away, too. So. Oh, good. <laughs> so you may actually already have it available. Uh, another Kickstarter and another really important figure in this whole discussion of multicultural steampunk literature is Jamie Goh. She's an editor, and um, she did a Kickstarter with several other Southeast Asian, uh, Polynesian, uh, Chinese, uh, Malaysian individuals, and so all of their steampunk stories from that Kickstarter are set in um, that part of our globe, and uh, it's really, it's all short fiction, but it's very good, and of course I am drawing a blank on the name just at this moment, but if you look up Jamie, um, Jamie Go, you will quickly find links to her work, to her editing, and to, to her fiction. Is, is she the person behind beyondvictoriana.com? Oh, that is... Um, that, that's another great resource. That is another great resource. That is not Jamie. Okay. My goodness, I'm going... And she is lovely, the woman behind... Um, 
In Beyond fact, Victoriana. I can no. probably find that very quickly. Yeah, maybe it is Jamie. Oh, goodness. Oh, no, I'm right. I'm Is it Sunadasi in Edinburgh? No, no, the woman who does multiculturalism beyond, beyond Victoriana actually lives in New York, I think. That's, that's is that Jamie? In fact, yes. I have her website. It is Jamie. All right. You're right, it is. I, I was You're right, Jamie. Yeah. That's right, you're right. Steampunk India is also another brilliant resource. She has a Facebook page too. It's really, she posts a lot of information. But you were right, David, it's Jamie. Yes, in fact, I'm looking at her site right now. No, it is, no, sorry, it's. it's G O H for Go. No, it's actually, I, it's Diana Foe who is. Diana Foe does yes. Beyond Victoriana. She is a delight. Um, and Jamie Go is. G-O-H, uh, go, and she is also lovely, and so you can get some really great short fiction um, through them, and, and also the, multi, the Beyond Victoriana is just a brilliant website with lots of information. She, she recommends uh, steampunk books that are multicultural steampunk books, she talks about multicultural steampunk costuming, and... Uh, and doing it in an appropriate way that you're not appropriating the culture, right. which is an which is an important. She works for Tor. You're right. She usually has a regular feature through Tor on their website that she reviews and talks about events in the steampunk community and books. So not only does she have this website, but she is helping Tor have a broader catalog for steampunk, which is really great for us. Mm -hmm. Oh, well, yes. um, she is a delightful human. I really like her. So, um, and then there is another gentleman out of, like, the Atlanta area. You're going to remember his name. Yeah, Steampunk is sort of what he, his take on Steampunk. And he wrote the Chronicles of, of Harriet Tubman, didn't he? Or? Yes, thank you. And Milton Davis is the other right so that is wonderful because it's coming from like an african-american perspective it's writing about some of the folk heroes in that community from the 19th century and also just looking through that lens in the, the americas which is really fantastic so and, and speaking, while we're kind of on the subject of anthologies and, and going back a little bit to the Weird Western, uh, one anthology series I recommend is um, Cynthia, uh, let me make sure, Cynthia Ward. <laughs> it's a good thing, notes are a good thing. Yeah, that's all Cyn good. Cynthia Ward has uh, the anthologies, the Lost Trails anthologies. And uh, featuring a number of uh, a number of authors of various ethnicities, but they the whole idea behind them is that they are multicultural weird western stories. And uh, the first volume is out, and I have that one, and it has uh, people like Nicole Kurtz, who is a wonderful African American steampunk author. Uh, she has not done any novels that I know of yet in. In steampunk, she's done some some very good. She does a very good science fiction mystery series that I highly recommend. 
Um, and unfortunately, I didn't write down the, the name of the, the detective, but uh, Sybil Lewis is the name. The Sybil Lewis series is, is worth worth it from a uh, from a science fiction point of view. But Nicole Kurtz is in these anthologies. Ernie Hogan, who is a a, a Phoenix area um, Latino author, uh, Rudy Chavez Garcia from Denver is in the anthologies. And Cynthia is very, if, if you friend her on Facebook, uh, look up her, her, her uh, material, she's, very, she's also very interested in seeing multicultural representations of steampunk, seeing, seeing steampunk written from women's perspectives and the problems of the women of the day, uh, of underrepresented peoples, uh, seeing that all, all taken care of. And on that note, I have to recommend Karen Memory by Elizabeth Bear. Um, it came out just last year in hardback and it's coming out just now in paperback. And it's set in San Francisco. It is not a young adult novel. It does deal with some adult situations. It's not salacious, but it's set in a gritty world, the gritty world of San Francisco as in a steampunk setting by San Francisco during the gold rush. And um, these women are just going through many hardships and um, dealing with the miners, with a variety of discrimination, cultural discrimination, gender discrimination, and even like job discrimination. And so the ways in which they navigate that, that it's, it's very interesting. It never feels heavy-handed or like it's a polemic. It feels very much it's character-driven and, and the plot is very well-developed. In fact, I literally read it like cover to cover when I should have been doing many other things. <laughs> it was a very good read. In fact, I read it and I insisted on doing it for book club to read it again because it's so good. So yeah. Well, let's see. We can we can kind of talk about some of the other I guess some of the we other uh, yeah. items on my list. We've actually covered several of them. Oh good. Um, <laughs> so okay. far. We do, we do have a quick question here. Oh, sure. Oh, ab- no, please please do. You said your inspiration comes from your family history. Mm-hmm. That's a yeah. That's a that's a good question. <laughs> well, I yes, <laughs> yes to all of that actually, yeah, all of the above. Well, my my background's actually astronomy. Uh, so, but but as far as doing, but it taught me how to do research basically. Oh, some some in there. Oh, we can't yeah, talk, yeah, talk about that. You can't leave the room now. No, <laughs> that would be spoilers. Close the door just in time. Yes. <laughs> but, but the. I uh, that you did work in that amazing historical, like Victorian observatory. Oh yes. Well, I can. Yeah, just to kind of go through some of the different sources of it. Um, I did work in the observatory. I worked at Mariah Mitchell Observatory on Nantucket, which was wow. one of the places that I really got a good, good. That's where I really kind of got my my initial love of steampunk. And uh, it's I, it was uh, the Mariah Mitchell Observatory was an observatory named for America's first woman astronomer, Mariah Mitchell. She was also the first 
even though it was an all-women's college, she was the first woman to be a professor at Vassar. She discovered she was, even though she was a senior professor, she discovered that she was not the highest paid professor at Vassar, and, or was not equal to, to professors of similar rank, and she argued successfully for being paid equal uh, pay for that. But, uh, so, and, and she discovered a comet, and she started, uh, she, was, she was very uh, key on um, starting the photographic plate collections that are at Harvard College Observatory now. And um, my, uh, my connection to it was I was there as a student for the summer at the observatory named in her honor, and I learned in the 1980s uh, how that I could still, you know, how remarkable it was that I could do science that was still relevant using technology from the 19th century, and it gave me a real appreciation for the technology of that period, and, and I just absolutely loved that element of it. Um, as a, just to, to continue on the question, um, Brazen, The Brazen Shark, which is my most recent uh, novel, I was looking for, I, I knew I wanted to set a good portion of the novel in Japan. And unfortunately, that's one place I, I've, not want, I've not been able to travel to yet, but have, have wanted to. But my brother has traveled there and had many, many wonderful stories of his time in Japan. And I went to him and I said, you know, who would you recommend would talk about Meiji-era Japan? And he pointed me to one of the people who is now one of my go-to people in, in research of the period, a fellow named Lafcadio Hearn. Lafcadio Hearn... Oh, his books. If you want to read period... If, if you want to read period... It's a part of the really good books. <laughs> She's flush. Uh, uh, they're some of my favorite books. I, I had so to go on a... Let me tell you, my, my fandom of Lafcadio Hearn was such that I had to go visit his house when I was in New Orleans. Oh. It, was a, it was a pilgrimage that had to happen uh, this last summer. Um, and, and I went and, and did my obeisance and t touched the house to hopefully... Uh, but, but the story of Lafcadio... Who Lafcadio Hearn is, for those who don't know him... He was, a, he was an Irish immigrant to the United States, uh, I want to say circa 1865. And he, he lived in Cincinnati, went to work for the newspapers. Um, after the Civil War, he went down to New Orleans, and he became a newspaper reporter there. And he is the person... We, we now pretty much know New Orleans is a very unique city in the South, but if you look back at the, at the time, people didn't really see New Orleans as anything particularly different than just another southern city. And he is the person who really we can, that, that we have learned that New Orleans had this really remarkable, rich French Creole culture. He, he wrote the first books of voodoo culture. He, wrote the he actually wrote the first Cajun and Creole cookbooks. You know, nowadays, you, know, you turn on PBS and you find, you know, we, we find Creole and Cajun cooking all over the place. It's Lafcadio Hearn who, who this goes back to. He wrote the obituary for Marie Laveau. Okay, that would have been enough to have cemented his, 
his place in 19th century literature. And he wrote about these things eloquently. I, I mean, not, they're not just dry newspaper accounts, but he, he wrote about them respectfully and, and wonderfully. He then immigrated to Japan in the 1890s, and he took a Japanese name. He married, and all of his descendants are in Japan to this day. And he wrote, he is the person for whom we know most, in, we in the West really know Meiji-era Japan uh, from his writings. He, he sent his writings back to America, and he, some of them are day-to-day -day life writings, you know, slice-of-life kinds of writings, and that, that's the kind of stuff I used. But he, he also collected uh, things like folk tales. Uh, he has a, two or three wonderful Japanese folk tale collections. Uh, one of them is Kwaidan, which was made into a movie in the 60s, uh, starring Toshiro Mifuni. And, uh, if you care to carry on with... Uh, <laughs> Anything else? Uh, he's delightful. I mean, um, so I don't, I'm sort of like in a, a state of this <laughs> um, I don't even remember where we were at before we went on. Well, it was tent. research. It was oh, research. research. So, so, yes. So, some of it is one of the things I, I like to do is I, I like to, to read accounts from people living at that from time, writers. from other writers who were actually living at that time, writing about the, the period. Because I think one of the things that, that uh, while you can read a modern, well-researched history, one of, one of the things that you can run into as a problem, and one of my research books for Owl Dance was um, Pat Garrett's The Authentic Life of Billy the Kid. Now, if you go through and look at good history uh, written about Billy the Kid, you'll find out that the authentic life of Billy the Kid is probably not so authentic. Um, he, he's got a lot, of, a lot of personal bias in the way he tells the story. He clearly was, it probably even was ghostwritten, but it gives you what people at the time knew about Billy the Kid. You see how it fell into the popular culture. You see how he spoke about it. You, you kind of see his, his take on it. And then you kind of look at the nonfiction. You look at, at the well-researched info to kind of temper you know, what was written at the time and, and to get an idea of how that all fit in, where, where their biases might have needed some adjustment. But I think it, it comes down to, you really kind of go to, you know, hence my answer, all of the above. You, you kind of look at all these different sources. Where would you find, like, the, the background texture, the vignette that sets the characters or the story? Like the smells and the the background, well, again, colors, well this is this like is where Lafcadio Hearn was wonderful for Japan because he gives you he, he does describe that you know so well that you really feel like you were traveling there at the time. Um, now, Lafcadio, L A F C A D I O, and hopefully I didn't transpose his. Uh, Hearn, H E A R M. Mm -hmm. So, I have some questions for you too, David. Okay. Um, now, I know I have some particular biases when I read steampunks <laughs> and things that I judge a book as good or bad. I mean, of course, like grammar is very important. <laughs> I want to make sure that editing has happened, the occasional typo is all right. 
I really love somebody who uses a dictionary. Those are sort of like baseline button. Achieve that. But as I was mentioning, I I don't care for a book that looks like it's just been sepia washed, as I like to call it. I want it to be a complete story where the steampunk elements are very organic and part of it. And when I look at multicultural stories, it's the same thing. I don't want just a coat of paint, you know, that's sort of covering up all of the glaring errors of of prejudice or horrible stereotypes or, you know, it's steampunk and it was in the 19th century so it's really okay to have these people eating watermelons. No, <laughs> it's not. Stop it. So what are some of the things you look for? Your, your, the, the thing that is a hallmark you know it's going to be a good read or things. Things I look for that, I, I guess, that's a, that's a good question and, and I think I look for authors that I have the sense have done their homework in in terms of much, you know, like I say, as someone who has done the research, um, I have the advantage of getting to go to several different uh, conventions. So, for instance, I, I knew S.M. Sterling long before I actually read any of his works. Uh, but actually, the very first book I read was Island on the Sea of Time, which is a, a book actually about Nantucket. Uh, and because I had been on Nantucket and, and had lived there, I really saw how well he portrayed that. And so I knew when he would do steampunk, it would come out very, very well. Um, as far as a lot of it is, is recommendation from folks, uh, people, I, you know, if I don't know someone, I'll kind of look for people who, who will be recommended to me, uh, people of similar taste. And so, again, people know I like, uh, I like authors who've done their homework. Uh, people like Sherry Priest and people oh. like uh, Gail Carriger. And, um, you know, Sherry Priest, she, will, she bends her history. Uh, but you all. But one of the, the hallmarks of good science fiction, I, I heard an interview with Isaac Asimov years and years ago, where he was actually asked, do you need to know science well to write science fiction? And I think that that applies very, you know, do you need to know your, your history very well to write steampunk? And I think the answer is not, you don't necessarily have, just like you, his answer was, you don't have to be a scientist to write science fiction but you do have to respect science to write science fiction. And I think much, much the same is true. You don't necessarily have to be a historian to write historical fiction or, or steampunk, but you do have to respect the history, and that's one of the things I think I look for very much in, in steampunk. Did you enjoy I, I enjoyed it. I, I had a lot of fun with it. Not so much for me. Okay. Well, I mean, you know, so the thing for me about Bone Shakers, I always recommended the caveat because I liked it and I have read everything that Sherry Priest has written because I like her prose. I think her prose is excellent. Um, and I loved that in Bone Shaker, when you get to that inner city, you're meeting a very diverse world. So, I mean, she's a good example of someone who is writing a multicultural experience. But there are a lot of zombies in her books. Yes. <laughs> and that's where I give the caveat, I'm like, no, 
lot of zombies. <laughs> and it's, it's got a mix of horror to it. So if that bothers you, then all the beautiful prose in the world is not going to get you through the book. There's a little too much running and screaming. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, there was there was some of that too. Although there's the part where she goes down the shoes and so exciting. Anyway, yeah, so so vague. Um, anyway, so. But I, but I like it because uh, you know I like her her drawing on on the whole underground city of Seattle, which yes. I having having been a, a you know my brother lives in Seattle, so I've I've been up there off and on since the seventies uh, since I was uh, a wee tyke. <laughs> it's. Uh, um, no, I, 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 so I, I loved seeing her, her vision of that, and I think that was the part that, that really captured me. David, don't you just sample as well with short stories to see if you kind of like their... Yeah, yeah, know, there's like the, reading... reading the, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, and that's actually one of the things that makes anthologies really a wonderful resource, is oftentimes the people who write for... Who, who write novels will be invited into anthologies, into steampunk anthologies, and you can get a chance to read their short stories and see whether there's going to be a flavor of the fiction that you like. And in, in fact, I really recommend the Jeff Vandermeer anthologies, um, Steampunk 1, 2, and 3, I think. Mm -hmm. Three, I think it's three now. I think, has he read for a fourth? I, I, I don't can't remember if he's got to four. I know in two especially, now, he has authors from all over the world and writing that steampunk, that's just the steampunk of where they are. It just happens to be in the English language. And um, he also has some authors for whom English is their primary language who are just doing research in these other cultures. And their research is good. They've done their homework, mm -hmm. which I think is very important. When you are writing about another culture, I think you don't... I, in costume, I think of it is, did you do the Toys R Us costume research? Or did you, like, actually go to the library? So you can go to Toys R Us. You could pick up some, some accoutrement. You could make that into a costume. But it might not be like the most vivid costume you could create. There might not be a lot of depth of story there. And some people might point out to you that what you're wearing is appropriation, right? Because you haven't done something respectful with it. If you do your research, you go a little deeper, not only do you get a story that is more... Authentic, you know, authentic, but, but often you find issues authentic. that you might not have necessarily thought of right. uh, when you when you started it. And, uh, yeah, you get beyond that surface perception, give some conflict and interest to your characters, something to work with. It's a bit like method acting, where they kind of think about here's my character, where did he grow up, what did he eat, what does he like? Right, you know? and and you know, a, a, and a good example of that, just just to pull pull an example from my research is. Authentic life of Billy the Kid. Okay, one of the things you learn in that is that Billy spoke Spanish, and that's often not covered in, in a lot of the in a lot of the books. I mean, the one thing you do you will find out even just reading on the surface is his last words were "Kienes, Kienes, uh, who's that? Who's there? Who's there?" Uh, calling out in the shack before Pat Garrett shot him. <laughs> um, it, but the the um, 
but then you you raise the whole question: How did this? How did this Anglo kid, who most likely was born in New York and ended up uh, traveling to uh, New Mexico, end up being a Spanish speaker? And well, it, it's just part of the culture of Silver City very at the time. And you find out how this all blended in, and that that he really was just a part of of where he lived. Well, not to feed your ego too much, David. Sorry. But you, not oh. to feed your ego too oh. much, but you do use language very well in that way in your books, too. I think it's an important thing to point out, and I, I say this not to be heavy-handed, but as someone whose specialty is language, being monolingual is an unusual thing. Most of the world is bi or multilingual, and the Southwest is a prime example of that. And so, David, you always do have some reference, even if you don't necessarily translate into the other language. It's clear that these people speak other languages, and there's some interaction. And you have, you have Spanish, you have Farsi, yeah. you know, and now you have Japanese. Japanese yeah. and it's just, it's really rich, and that for me. One of the things that is um, that I know is going to make the, the book come alive is a really rich understanding of how culture and language works. It's like not play pretend dress up, throwing people in bustles because bustles are cool and they are. <laughs> but understanding that these are humans you're representing and humans use culture and language in certain ways, and they can enrich a story. Mm-hmm. And, and they all have their stories to tell, and they they all have their problems. Uh, and I think that's the, you know that's the thing is, and to remember that these people are humans and not caricatures. I think that's always been that that's one of the problems that I think you can run into when you're writing. I think if you if if you look back at some of the old, um, say, the old Western films with the, the Chinese characters that might run in, in there, or you look at, you know, if they're, you know, a, a good example is, is even, you know, wonderful as the movie is, uh, it's almost painful to look at some of the Mexican, char- the Mexican bandito characters in, in um, Treasure of the Sierra Madre. Yes, yes. <laughs> Yeah, badges. We don't need no stinking badges. Well, that's, that's why Blazing Saddles is such a nice homage. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> so, no, but it's true. I mean, sometimes when when you're looking at that, you're looking at the past. Um, there's a wonderful book that was published forever ago. Um, it said the pa- it was called The Past is an Undiscovered Country because. Um, when you look at the past, it is like going to a different country. The culture is different, the language uses is different, the context is different. So it's, uh, the homework is very important because you have to like understand your context mm-hmm. and know the rules you're going to break and why you're breaking them. Right. That's really important. And to be very conscientious about it and not like discover you've, you've made an error that was terrible and didn't really intend that, and your story could have been so much better otherwise. Well, we're starting to get close to, I think, the end of our time, but I wanted to see if there were any other questions, or... Good question. Yeah. Yeah. 
Uh, for each of you guys, what's one culture that you haven't seen in a story that you really like in a story? You know, I would love to see someone do uh, do something in South America. Um, something you know, I've not really seen anyone do. Now, you know, the closest that, and you know, this is this is sort of tooting my own horn, but it's but it's in a. It was suggested, and it's just a tiny bit. Uh, I did a little bit of of Chile in uh, the ending of. Revolution of Aaron Rust, which is a novella I did, but I've not really seen anyone do any significant South American, Brazilian, uh, Chilean, or, or Ecuadorian uh, work. And, and you had a lot of cultures mixing and meshing. You you had a lot of the European cultures coming into Brazil, into Chile, doing uh, working with the technologies and such, and and that you know working with the cultures there, I think there could be some really rich stories there that haven't been told. Mark. David wasn't the first president of the Chilean Republic Japanese. I believe he was. Yes. Yeah. Uh-huh. The Chile Republic was founded in what 1850s. Yeah. Yeah. I mean the, that the entire culture that grew up during that revolution from Spain was a multicultural right. social elite, and they still had money. And, well, and just in, and just in a very sorry to oh, no, go ahead. But, but just in a very brief aside, actually one of the fun things uh, these days is our our mayor in Las Cruces, New Mexico, Ken Miyagashima, is a Japanese descendant of Japanese chili farmers from the the late 1800s, early 1900s in, in Las Cruces. M- many of those cultures in South America are like very diverse. Um, and I, Brazil is something I haven't been to Brazil. I don't speak Portuguese, but I speak Italian. It's huge. The the largest population of Italian speakers outside of Italy is in Brazil, and in Brazil, as this Japanese immigrant community mm-hmm. that are grow tea. And they have really fine tea. So yeah, I mean, it's it's very rich. It's not just one thing in any of these places, which is why storytelling from those areas is so viable and so rich and so exciting. So, I know, I'm... What would you, what, what, where else would you like to see? Um, I think I'd love to see something from Bulgaria or from, I know that the Ottoman Empire gets mentioned occasionally, but but from the Balkans and from that era of the Ottoman Empire and just the sort of, it was really rife with a lot of revolutionary activity and invention and Tesla was Serbian <laughs> and um, so I'd really like to see some more or something really from that oh. part of the world. Ottoman steampunk gives me chills. <laughs> Just the thought of that. I, I, I think you can, I, for me. You're catching me outlining a new novel. Well, I'm you know, going into almost part of that world. So. David, Oh, but he hated them. He hated them. I mean, he didn't write nicely about the English, you know. Well, 
and, and that actually, there's a very interesting point about Jules Verne in that a lot of the translations many of us grew up with are terribly inaccurate translations because they came through England and the English editors heavily edited them and, and took out any references against England. And so, for instance, one of the best translations of 20,000, I, I read, you know, when growing up, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, I loved the movie almost more than I liked the book. But I then, a few years ago, I read the, the uh, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea as translated, and it, it's published by, of all people, the Naval Institute Press. <laughs> and um, that translation is a beautiful translation of it. Um, instead of just getting the, the lists of, of undersea fauna, that you see in the British translations, you actually get some of the descriptive prose that was cut out of that because they, they were act, they, they actually ha did a real hack job hacking and cutting pieces of, of 20,000 out, out of it. And, and that's a perfect question because Jules um, and 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Captain Nemo is not a Frenchman, he's not an Englishman, He's Indian, yes. and he hates the English, and he's fighting against them. And you ah, can read we're getting, more about we're, we're getting the cut oh, sign. All right, um, but Mark, re uh, real quickly. Really so. good. Uh, speaking of Autumn Steampunk and Captain Nemo, there's a scene in 20,000 Leagues where they land near the Greek coast and turn water and cover both over to the Greek girls who are fighting the Autumn yes. in Greece. And when Fern first wrote 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, Nemo was a Polish aristocrat oh. who had escaped Russian rule. His editor felt that was too ethically specific, so he says, let's just call him Captain Nemo, Mr. Nobody. Nemo is Latin for right. no one. And that'll be more, be more appealing to a wider audience. And then later, it wasn't until wrote, Mysterious Island. Mysterious Island. Let me meet Prince Dakar. Yes. So, thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Hi guys! If you're a fan of reading like I am, and you've been looking to try out audible.com for audiobooks, we have a link for a free 30-day trial. So go ahead and check out audibletrial.com slash creative plan podcast network. That's audible, A-U-D-I-B-L-E-T-R-I-A-L dot com slash creative plan podcast network. Thanks! Thank you for listening to the Creative Play and Podcast Network. And feel free to enjoy our other shows, such as D&D Journey of the Fifth Edition and Scion Ragnarok and Roll, a Scion hero to Ragnarok story. Thank you for listening. And we have, we have camera here. I'm so chagrined. Dear, dear David, I was accosted by a very large man in a metal suit. Oh my. Was he, darling, was, he was he accosting or was he equating? I believe I may have been accosting, I'm not really sure, but there was accosting involved. So I apologize. One well, never knows. I, I just looked at the clock and it's just 11 o'clock now. So oh, actually, my perfect, it was perfect timing. Actually. I, I just. Released myself of his clutches on the run time.
Ooh, ooh, there were clutches involved. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. And there was a costing. And, I should grin. I don't know. I just. We just brought our perfect compartments, didn't we? Yeah, so they're, they're going to glare at each other. Alright, glaring. He'll be fierce. Oh, he's going to point. Next, this arm. Point this arm. Girl. Alright. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Alright, David. Take it away. Okay, welcome everyone. This is our panel on multicultural steampunk literature.